Hello, and welcome to Killer Hangover. I'm Aiden. I'm Beth. And I'm Bettina. And this is Killer Hangover Podcast. Yay! Welcome to episode 124 of Killer Hangover. And as you probably heard, we have a guest for today's show. Hi, I'm Aiden. <laughs> Aiden is home with me from school. Why? Because I'm sick a little bit. I get sick. A, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You want to say, tell everybody how old you are? I'm six years old. We don't need to yell in the microphone, especially because we're sharing a microphone. (laughs) I'm going to be sick in the next week's episode. (laughs) So Aiden, since he was home during our recording, I asked him to come up with a joke for you all. Would you like to share your joke? Yes, please. Okay. What did the left eye say to the right eye? What does he say? Between you and me, something smells. <laughs> the nose. Aiden, that's great. That is a good one. It's kind of funny. Hey, Aiden. Yeah? Where do you find a cow with no legs? Where you left him? <laughs> where, you, where you left him? Right where you left him. <laughs> da, da, da. All right, man. Well, thanks for being on the show. Thanks You're for the You're uh, welcome. Now I'm going to go eat my lunch. <laughs> it's good to see you, sweetheart. Now finish the podcast for me because I need to go eat my peanut butter and jelly. Go eat your peanut butter and jelly, you little weirdo. Bye. Bye. <laughs> oh, my gosh. He's so stinking cute. He's something else. <laughs> he's too cute, my little squish bug. Okay, so I know we're recording this in the afternoon, but I mean, we have to have a cocktail for the episode. Duh, yeah. So we're going to do something a little different, and even I don't know what we're doing. All I was told was to grab three bottles of alcohol that I happen to have on hand. Yep, I told her what she needed to grab, and she's going to make the cocktail, and she's going to, well, it's a shot, and she's going to enjoy it this afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) okay since i can't since you know i'm knocked up again okay mom are you ready i'm ready okay i found this on cocktailbuilder.com so like mom said she has three alcohols in front of her she has a 151 proof rum a kalua coffee liqueur and a bailey's irish cream i'm excited (laughs) okay so first you're gonna grab your kalua okay And pour, so you're going to do a third of each of these liqueurs in the shot glass. Got it? I got it. Okay, so start with your Kahlua. Fill the shot glass a third of the way with the Kahlua. Got it. Hold on. Okay. Mm, And lick that drop because (laughs) I love Kahlua. Okay, then with the spoon I told you to grab, use the spoon, kind of hold it over the shot glass, and slowly pour the Irish cream into the shot glass on top of the Kahlua. And just do that another third. 
Okay. Can I lick this one too? Because this is my yes. favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. And again, with the 151 rum, again, over the spoon, slowly pour that on top. Okay. Finish off, finish off that shot with the 151 proof rum. Okay. All okay. right. Okay. Now light it on fire. (laughs) What did you think the matches were for? For looks? (laughs) I had no idea about the lighting on fire. Okay. Okay. Well, you're supposed to light it on fire, blow out the flame, and then take the shot. But if you don't want to do the fire, you don't have to. I'd rather not. I'm sitting in my office with all my equipment around me. I'd rather (laughs) not. Yeah, I am chicken. But I'll... (laughs) I'll drink this shot and the next one I'll do downstairs in the kitchen and then I will write light it white it I'll light it on fire (laughs) I haven't even had the shot yet okay well cheers mom enjoy your shot cheers I will okay I bet that was tasty it was it was sweet but it went down really smoothly That is called the Lighthouse Cocktail, and it has everything to do with my story, and I'm uh, happy you got to enjoy it. Those are two (laughs) of my favorite liqueurs, and I like rum, so I bet that was really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I wonder if it changes the flavor if you do light it on fire. I don't imagine it does too much, but does it burn off the alcohol? Like Maybe. I'll get back to you on that. Yeah, you should. (laughs) Because I've tasted it this way. I'll let you know if it tastes Taste test different. the lighthouse shot, please. <laughs> Maybe I'll do a side-by-side like my sister likes so much. Mom, it is noon, so. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about tonight. But... Okay, good. <laughs> Tom comes home and you're doing a side-by-side of like, well, I wanted to try this coffee liqueur and this one, and I wanted to try. I didn't light this one on fire, but I lit this one, and then I got to light this one on fire. (laughs) All right, Mom. I know you have a big story to share this week. I do. I do. In fact, I could probably make this into three episodes. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm happy I filled my Yeti up with water. I'm not going to, obviously, but this will be a little longer than usual. It was just a topic that there was so much information that I wanted to, well, I couldn't stop anywhere. So (laughs) we are going to, I guess, visit Oregon this week. And Beth obviously has the paranormal and I have the true crime. A lot of you might have seen Wild Wild Country on Netflix. It's about the Rajneesh. Um, I'm going to go a little bit more in depth at some places, but less in depth in other places. Here we go. <laughs> oh, this documentary was fascinating. I watched it like, when did that come out? Like a year or two ago? Yeah. They did it. I thought they did a really good job with that. They did. They, they did. And I will talk a little bit about it. All right. This is a quote. I am here to seduce you into a love of life, to help you to become a little bit more poetic, to help you die to the mundane and to the ordinary so that the extraordinary explodes in your life. That is a quote from Bhagwan Shri Rajneesh. 
do want to kind of slide this in here. These names are, and words are all foreign to me <laughs> as that they're Indian. And so I would like to uh, extend an apology right now if I'm totally slaughtering them. All right, the quote that I just read is definitely poetic and really quite a draw. I mean, really, Beth, who doesn't want to get rid of the mundane and have an extraordinary explosion in their life? Mm -hmm. Seriously. But is that reality? Let's start at the very beginning. Chandra Mohan Jen was born on December 11th, 1931 in Kachawa, India. He lived with his grandparents during his formative years and then with his parents. He was said to be very intelligent, but also contrary and rebellious, getting into trouble throughout high, grade school and high school. This attitude also caused him to be forced out of one college and into another. In 1952, he took a year off to meditate and search his soul. According to him, during this hiatus from school, he achieved enlightenment. I don't understand. I've always tried to meditate. It is so hard for me to do. Well, Can maybe you imagine doing that for an like, entire year. Maybe you'll like his type of meditation. And I'll get into that. This enlightenment didn't seem to be enough because Chandra returned to school and graduated with a philosophy degree after which he went on to receive a master's degree in philosophy. But again, his radical views put him at odds with the college and he was dismissed. Eventually, he became a professor at the University of Jabalpur. During this transition, he was also spreading his ideas about spirituality. Remember, he had been enlightened, so he was spreading this enlightenment. Now I have to insert here that his ideas were unconventional to say the least. For instance, he taught that sex was the first step in achieving super consciousness. And he was very open about that. And he, I mean, he taught that openness about sex. If you feel like having sex with somebody and they feel like having sex with you, it doesn't matter if you're married, which he didn't really believe in because it constrained you. He didn't believe in having children either because they constrained you also. But if you wanted to have sex, have sex. No matter where you are. Yeah. Just I saying. remember that from the documentary. <laughs> in 1964, he started holding meditation camps and recruiting followers. Two years later, he quit teaching and fully engulfed himself in spreading his spiritual teachings. The, quote, sex guru as he had become known, was someone conventional people and institutions totally steered away from, but also somebody that attracted many looking for, well, I guess an escape from the mundane. By 1970, Chandra, who had changed his name now to Bhagwan Shri Rajneesh, or just Rajneesh, had an ashram in Prune, Italy. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, an ashram is a secluded dwelling of a Hindu sage, also a, the group of disciples of the Hindu. It's a religious retreat is another definition of. Okay. 
ashram. At his retreat, Rajneesh introduced the practice of dynamic meditation, which was supposed to allow people to experience divinity. Before I go on, I want to quickly describe the five steps of dynamic meditation. So Beth, when you think of meditation, what are you thinking? Well, just quiet and like trying to find your inner self and you just try to like find that total turn everything off. I just can't do any of that. And how do you how would you go about doing that? Probably in a quiet space. <laughs> what would you know. be doing with your body? Would you be sitting? Well, just... everybody. Yeah, you sit cross legged like that's what I've always seen people do or just sitting somewhere <laughs> or laying down. I've seen people meditate by lying down. I so I w- I was subbing fifth graders the other day and I had to take them to the gym. The gym teacher wasn't there. So they were already sitting in their little spots and I go, "Okay, kids, while we wait, we're going to meditate." And I oh swear gosh. all of them crossed their legs and did their fingers, you know, and and were in yeah. the lotus position. <laughs> all of yeah. us and they started humming so even like to the fifth graders that's what people think of okay now erase all of that okay this is dynamic meditation first you have to be kind of physically fit and you'll figure that out as i go the meditation goes for an hour during which you have your eyes closed the entire time now you do this in a room of people or do this by yourself. So it could be in a crowded room. So I fall asleep is what I would do. <laughs> no, you wouldn't because you are standing. You are not sitting. This Step is, one. Sounds horrible. Erratic, very fast breathing during which time your body is moving. So you're breathing in real fast, letting out. <sighs> I mean, I would hyperventilate because this goes on for 10 minutes. Okay. And the whole time your body is moving. So your arms are swaying, you're bending over, whatever your body wants. I mean, your eyes are closed. So this is a total self thing. Okay. Self-contained thing, I should say. All right. Step two. You let all of your pent up emotions, frustrations, sadness, anything that you're holding inside, you let it out. By screaming and laughing and crying, shouting, hitting, whatever it takes to let the madness that is inside of you out. This is a very physical activity. So the way that I've always pictured meditation, that's the normal way though, right? Like this is this is a totally different. Yes. Okay. Remember, <laughs> he's, he's very different from ordinary. <laughs> that you do for 10 minutes and it's loud and it's aggressive and it's just screaming and some people are crying and some people are laughing but again you have your eyes closed it's very physical step three jump up and down with your arms raised over your head all the while shouting and when you land with your feet on the ground let your landing come up into your core. So feel, actually feel your landing through your body. Okay. You do this for another 10 minutes. Step four, 
freeze, <laughs> which means your hands are in the air. For 10 minutes, you have to hold your arms in the air? Longer than that. Oh, my gosh. So your arms are above your head. Stand still and stay as you are for 15 minutes. You really do have to be in shape. My <laughs> arms would burn after two minutes. I know. Step five, dance and celebrate for another 15 minutes. Yeah, try to get the blood flowing back into your fingertips. <laughs> into your heart. <laughs> so I know this is a bit detailed, but I just wanted you to get the idea of how different this guru was. Even his meditation was totally different. Mm-hmm. It should be no surprise that many young people from all over the world came to visit or even reside at the ashram in Prune, Italy. With them came money. Meditation had become a product to sell. These devotees are called sannyasins. They took Indian names, dressed in red clothes or orange, maroon, <laughs> and participated in group sessions that involved violence and sexual openness. Or, <laughs> from what I gather, orgies would be another good name for this. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. I wanted to know why the color red, which, by the way, Rajneesh wore very little of. His wardrobe was bright and literally shiny. Light blues and whites, etc. He had to to stand out. Yeah. Anyway, according to the Los Angeles Times, Rajneesh decreed that the Sanyans wore red because the color represents the sunrise, which goes with Rajneesh's teachings of, quote, the new man. So what is he teaching, though? He's teaching, first of all, the meditation. He's teaching peace and love. He's very unconventional because anything, he doesn't believe in religion. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't believe in any kind of control. You know, he wants his own community where he can control what's said and done, and he doesn't have any outside influence. I mean, during the 60s and 70s, so we're in the 70s now, but during that time, it was very peace, love, you know, the hippie thing that that we're familiar with. And that's what he was teaching, basically. Yeah, because I couldn't even really, I couldn't even really grasp exactly what he was teaching from the documentary either. I just remember all of these people saving so much money traveling across the globe to go just to see him. And I was like, okay, that's, he's obviously, but what is he teaching? Like, why do you care about him so much? Yeah. And that was pointed out several times that the documentary is lacking. Yeah. I didn't really know like what, what was the core value of his right Uh, group it it didn't very well go into his teaching or why people were following him like that nor did it really go into what a day-to-day life looked like right and guess what i'm not gonna go into a big deal either i'll put together what i know it's kind of all over the board on the internet so it is really i don't yeah i don't really know if there was like a um I don't know if they necessarily had like a mission statement. Like, I just, I don't know. Right. 
I didn't come across I mean, I, I saw that they wanted to do good and they wanted peace and they wanted, you know, they wanted to be self-sustainable and mm-hmm. they all believed in this free love and I, but I didn't find like what, what was the like core <laughs> value here? <laughs> but all these people loved him. Yeah, a lot did. In fact, by the late 70s, the six acre ashram in India was overcrowded. Rajneesh mm-hmm. had to relocate. The problem was the local government did not want him or his followers. So where could they go? Where was there a place large enough to set up a self-governing city where the community could be free of other religious and societal constrictions? And that's where I will introduce Ma Anand Sheila, who was Rajneesh's right-hand woman and played a very important role in what was to follow. Sheila first met Rajneesh in 1968, when she was 16 years old. His words, his voice, his eyes, everything about the man was intriguing to Sheila, and she soon soon fell in love with him. Rajneesh recognized her devotion, and eventually she became the voice for, for Rajneesh, as well as manager of the community and fierce protector of Rajneesh himself. With his trust in her, It was Sheila who was sent out to find a place to relocate the community. Rajneesh envisioned a community of 50,000 Senyansans living his teachings somewhere in the desert. Sheila found a 64,229 acre property. That's about 100 square miles. So it's big. How many football fields, mom? (laughs) It's, It's very big. (laughs) <laughs> to bring you back to what was that episode two <laughs> God, <laughs> football fields the property is in central Oregon known as the Big Muddy Ranch right outside of the small town of Antelope in Wasco County the ranch was wild dry with a lot of rocks hills very little water if any not what one would call real productive farmland in 1981, when the Rajneesh bought the property, Antelope had a population of 50. That would be 5-0. It had a post office, a general store, a school, and a church. It was a town where retirees bought a house if they were searching for peace and quiet. Boy, was that ideology shattered after the red-clad Sinyanians started pouring in. And pouring in, they did. Oh my gosh, I remember this in the documentary. These people are, 50 people are just living their small little lives. They're so content with their just small community and their little traditions and their little families. And then all of a sudden, buses and buses of these people in these red cloaks and red sweats. and Yes, and as you guys probably or sense from what she's saying, she's talking about wild, wild country. And again... If this episode intrigues you, you really, really have to watch it. Oh, just visualizing all of this is crazy. Yeah, and there's no way I can cover everything in this episode. So Wild Wild West really goes... Wild Wild Country. Wild Wild West. (laughs) Wild Wild Country really goes into it as a six-part series with real footage, which I think is Mm -hmm. awesome. 
and real interviews. And it does a really good job in showing both sides of the coin, if you will. You'll hear how the citizens of Antelope felt as well as how the followers of Rashnish felt about him and what attracted them to his teachings. And these people, I mean, even now, they're much older. They haven't been in the commune for many, 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 many years. Even now they cry when they talk about it. And they're Mm -hmm. just like tears of gratitude that they were able to live there. Tears of sadness that people outside the community didn't understand them. Mm-hmm. It, it's anyway you have to watch it it's just an excellent documentary <laughs> okay 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 so back to the story in 1981 and with Ma Anadshila at its helm construction was started at Rajneeshpuram which was formerly Big Muddy Ranch it took close to three years but after construction a city had been built complete with townhouses, a fire department, police, restaurants, electric power plant, a large shopping center with a pizza parlor and boutiques, which of course only carried red clothing. Yep. (laughs) An airport, public transportation, a sewage plant, a reservoir and farms. And these farms were all organic farms. Yeah. And keep in mind when they moved in, this was like desert. Yeah. Yeah, like they that was so impressive to me because it was just this desert, deserted, not cared for, dry land. And all of a sudden in three years, not all of a sudden, but in three years, they worked their booties off and made these beautiful lush farms and they built everything from I mean, it was it was incredible. It, to it watch. was. And the residents work 24 7 they took shifts oh yeah they'd work for like 16 hours in the documentary they showed live footage of this and they all were still smiling and singing and hugging each other and but can you imagine how proud of yourself you would be that you were actually building your own civiliz your own civilization and not depending on anything else but what your hands made. Yeah. I thought that was really neat. So yeah, that that would be quite the experience and I mean, it was I understand it's a cult, I get it, but that was that that would have been really neat to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah, to truly intrinsically believe in this community of love and sharing and peace so much so that you're going to work your butt off excuse me and literally and literally build it from the ground yes and live it from that and live it from the ground up and it's it was quite amazing sheila is actually quoted as saying lazy people we do not want (laughs) (laughs) you know they They had you couldn't be lazy that's for sure. no part in it actually more than half of the residents were college educated successful people engineers, Mm -hmm. architects, doctors, lawyers, etc. Here's a a little bit of info that I picked up watching Wild Wild Country. Rashnish Puram was looked at from the perspective of the residents of Antelope, then later most of the U.S. as a cult, as you just called them. This was just a few years after Jamestown, which happened in 1978. And people started relating the two. Now, ironically, Mm. 
the daughter of Congressman Ryan, who is killed on the yeah. airstrip outside of Jonestown, actually became a follower of Bhagwan Rashnish and then a resident of Rashnish Purim. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And very interesting. And I love that kind of trivia. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so are they not a cult? They claim they are not. Well, of course they claim they're not. <laughs> After the town was built, the residents of Antelope became uncomfortable. It was, of course, not unusual to see red-clad Sinyanians or Rashnishians, which they are now called. These people were all over town. Unfortunately, it was also not unusual to see unclad Rashnishians indulging in sexual interludes. Yes, and listening to the poor people of Antelope <laughs> oh. discuss how the noises they heard and the things they saw. Again, these poor 50 people living there, very quiet, quaint lives. <laughs> I wow. drove into town and there's <laughs> two of them people having sex on the bridge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I can definitely see their point of view. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I can see their Maybe. point of view. I mean, have as much free sex as you want, whatever you want to do, but keep it. But go keep it go in do your it in your commune. <laughs> You've got this huge <laughs> desert. You can do it outside of the town. <laughs> you have a hundred. Yeah, I mean, they have to understand that not everybody agrees with this free love teaching. So go do that on the commune. I'm sure that you know that's. But don't go do that in somebody else's town. Right. Somebody else's yard. They just, yeah, whatever yeah. they felt like it. The Antelope residents wanted the Rashnish Purims out of their town. You think? <laughs> <laughs> they started by attracting the attention of lawmakers that the land Rush Purim sat on was zoned as agricultural land, not residential. Uh-oh. To fight against that... Ma Anand Sheila began buying property in the town. First houses, then moving on to businesses. The properties were either already on the market or Sheila would offer the, the owners an amount they could not refuse. Now, there is nothing illegal about that. Then, in 1982, a vote was held in Antelope. On the ballot was a yes or no vote to, and I know this word is not a word, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway, because that's, <laughs> that's what we do. We never do that, Mom. Like, <laughs> We never just make up words. Yes or no own. vote to unincorporate or not. That's a word. That has to be unincorporate. I don't know. My pad has underlined as, nah. <laughs> I think it sounds like a word. They also were voting for city council members. The town's slogan, better dead than red. That's why they were willing to unincorporate. By this time, the nation had heard about the new, quote, cult. So media poured into Antelope. The residents of Antelope had no chance of winning. There just wasn't enough of them. They lost the vote to unincorporate. And not only that, but the new city council consisted of Rashnishpurams and one Antelopean. <laughs> the first bit of business was to oh, rename the city. From Antelope to Rashnish, public buildings and street names were changed as well to Indian names. This started a new fear. What if the Rashpurams set out to 
get control of more of Oregon. Maybe even the whole state. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? No, no. Sheila had no qualms about vocalizing and defending Bhagwan and his followers, as well as throwing out cuss words to the people, hurling accusations at her and Bhagwan. The first time on the you know actual footage where she's cussing, I, it blew me away because here's this very tiny, very quote peaceful woman and she's letting the f-bomb just fly (laughs) and her middle fingers up and then the interviewer asked her a question and she's like well that's just tough titties (laughs) now that phrase is actually (laughs) like quote her phrase is tough titties i I like that (laughs) phrase (laughs) in july 1983 Three pipe bombs exploded at the Hotel Rushnish in Portland, Oregon. The attack caused $180,000 in damages, but no one was killed. Sheila was pissed. Yeah. She was mad in every sense of the word. And she was like the face of all yes. of this. He really kind of took a back seat. He did. Like, he took a vow of silence. So yeah, I was I was just gonna say, wasn't he silent? Yeah. And like I remember too, he was he had so much money. Yeah, he was buying all those cars. I'm gonna get and like, I'm gonna get into that. Oh so. my gosh! But yeah, he he wasn't even like doing anything anymore. Nope, nope. he wasn't. He's talking. just sitting on these piles of money. <laughs> he He's taking his vow of silence, and then she's dealing with she's dealing with everything. Everything. Yep. Here's a quote that she said, when Jesus said, turn the other cheek, we take both of their cheeks. (laughs) Weapons, weapons, weapons. Yeah, this is where this is where it started to go downhill for sure. Introduced to Rashpuram. Guns, guns and more guns. There were guards everywhere, all carrying semi-automatic weapons. Even Sheila wore a side holster with a handgun and they were all trained to use these guns. I mean, they would have practice every day. At this point, Oregon lawmakers started paying real attention to Rushpuram. Oregon Attorney General David Fronmayer concluded that the city was an arm of a religious organization which violates the principle of separation of church and state. Sheila grew more vocal and volatile appearing on the news and on talk shows. It was almost a strange month, maybe even a strange week, if one didn't see Sheila on TV. She was everywhere. And the Rush Niche movement was gaining momentum. Communes were established all over the world. In America, there was a lot more land and cities to overtake. Sheila was on a mission. The Wasco County elections were coming up and Sheila had a plan. Well, actually, mm. several plans. In order to win more like a con. In order to win the elections, there have to be plenty of people to vote, okay? So they had actually started this first program right after the cities started being built. They would send pairs of Rush Nations all over the United States, all over. One of the pair was a natural-born American and the other an immigrant. The two had to prove to immigration authorities that they were indeed a couple. In fact, the couple would be married and live where they were 
where they had been sent until a green card was issued and the immigrant became an American citizen. Then the couple would move back to Rajneeshpuram and go back to the person they had been with before the move. This, by the way, is immigration fraud. Sheila had implemented this system shortly after the town was built, but time was running fast. The elections were right around the corner, and this was a very slow process. Then she thought of and implemented the Share a Home program. Oh, this is horrible. In September 1984. The Rashnishans would take a bus to the Skid Rows in various cities. I mean, all over the United States. Inviting the homeless to Rashnishpuram. There, they would have shelter and food and beer. Beer. They would give them a beer as they got on the bus. (laughs) Its purpose, (sighs) Sheila said to the media, was to, quote, to share with some people who have been less fortunate than we have end of quote. The real purpose was to bust these very grateful individuals to Rashnish Purim and after they got settled in to take them to get registered to vote in Wasco <laughs> County. Yep. Only this turned out to be not such a brilliant plan. Many of these homeless had histories of mental illness. It was not surprising that the intellectual elite of Rashnish Purim and the homeless did not get along. The arguments got so bad that Sheila held a meeting of the homeless, blaming them for all the upset that was going on. 250 left on their own account. Sheila came up with a plan. Again, can you imagine being the people that live in Antelope? And then you have all, now you have all these buses of these... Homeless. Of, of homeless and just more people just brought... Ugh, that just would have been... Just another thing. Yep. Sheila came up with a plan. To keep the street people calm, Heldol was secretly added into kegs of beer that the street people drank. Everyone was allowed two beers a day. Now, Heldol is like, mm, almost like Valium, but I think think a little stronger. When I was reading about this, um, one article said that they use it in hospitals like ER rooms, but when people that come in that are psychotic or have psychosis, they are injected with this drug to calm them down. So this is put in the beers? It is put in the kegs of beer. Wow. So wow, all these people were drugged, didn't even know that they were being drugged. Reports from street people that were interviewed after they left Rushpurum were not bright, sunny, and sweet. If they refused to register to vote, they were punished by food, clothing, and bedding being refused to them. Oh my gosh. The forced registration didn't matter anyway. County clerk Sue Prophet halted voter registration in Wescow County because of, quote, the possibility of voter fraud. Potential new voters had to attend a special hearing process in the dolls. Only 14 showed up. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. By the end of 1984, almost all of the 3,000 street people had been literally tossed out. Oh, and the free transportation home that they had initially been promised had been retracted. That's horrible. According to a statement released by the Salvation Army, it spent about 100000 to house, feed, and purchase tickets 
for those displaced people to return to where they had originally come from. Shortly after the Share a Home program started, people in the Dials started getting really sick. Over 700 people, and I read someplace it was like 750 people, 45 of which were hospitalized. From what? Doctors soon realized that it was a form of salmonella that these sick people all had. Now, salmonella is usually found in meat, bad chicken, bad beef, bad fish, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. These people hadn't eaten any of that. After extensive research, it was found that the salad bars in eight different restaurants in the city had been contaminated with this special form of salmonella. The salmonella was later identified in a lab in Rashnishpuram. From the descriptions given, I gather that chosen Rashnishans went to the eight restaurants and covertly sprinkled the lab-made salmonella on everything in the salad bar. So hold on, the Rashnishas are getting other people sick? Yeah, that they went out into the community of the Dells. The Dells is, a, is like a town. Okay. And they went out there and secretly dumped the salmonella on the salad bars. But why? Why? Because they wanted them out so much? Do you ask why? <laughs> to lower the number of voters, of course. Oh my gosh, so were they planning on killing all these people? Or making them super, super sick. The event oh was and still is the largest bioterrorism attack in America. That's horrible. Now back to Bhagwan Rashnish. He had come to the U.S. to live in 1981. He, of course, lived at Rashnish Puram, but had vowed silence. Thus, <laughs> Sheila was his spokeswoman. Now, every afternoon, he would drive one of his 93 Rolls Royces yeah. around the property. The sannyasins would line the road side by side, singing or playing music. Now, they were not allowed to line up behind each other or stand behind each other. Yeah, they had to stand like side by and side. And they told them the reason was Rushnish wanted to see the all of their faces but <laughs> the real reason was in case someone was carrying a gun and hiding behind somebody so a gun to shoot Rushnish. sure so it was a protective actually a protective i don't trust you thing and how could Rushnish see their faces because for the most part he just looked ahead and drove and raised his hand a little bit with his, oh, multi-diamond watch, wristwatch. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, even at this time, it's like, what are these people following, though? That's what I just don't get. Like, I understood, like I said, of the whole building your own community and your own from the ground up. Like, that's really cool. But like, okay, but now what are you following what is your, what is the, what is the point? <laughs> what is your objective? Well, lining up every afternoon to watch Rajneesh pass by was a very sacred time of the day for them. To see their master was a totally spiritual moment. Oh, people would sing and dance and put flowers on the car and, you know, just worship this guy. And... 
This was the only time that they would see him. Things had slowly started to crack. In 1985, Sheila started suspecting that her beloved leader was on drugs. There were reports that he took 60 milligrams of Valium every day. That's a lot. That's a lot. And throughout the day, he would take hits of nitrous oxide, which is laughing gas. Wow. She didn't trust Roshnish's personal doctor, Swami Devaraj, nor his wife, Permhasa. They were a wealthy couple from Hollywood. Sheila felt that they were pushing her out of her position by giving Bhagwan lavish gifts, such as the large diamond-encrusted watch that Bhagwan always wore. Rashnish was known to love lavish, expensive, shiny things. Now, here's a little bit of irony. Sheila claims that she never gave into this passion of the Rashnish. Although, when she was on Johnny Carson, she said that she wished the Rashnish had more Rolls Royces. Like, you know, 93 isn't enough. <laughs> she said she wished they could gift him a new Rolls every day of the week. Again, but why? He's not even talking to anybody. Like, who? Why? why? <laughs> I mean, if he was preaching every day or, you know, giving guidance or anything. But seeing the Rashnish was on drugs and flaunting his expensive jewelry, Sheila was done. First, she had one of the team Sheila, I'll call them team Sheila, Sinyans inject the doctor with poison at a very crowded gathering. The doctor testified he became so sick that he ended up spending two weeks in the hospital. Now, this didn't work. So Sheila and her group fled into the night. Rajneesh later stated that he knew nothing of her leaving until she was gone. But Sheila and several others say that almost 300 Shanishans followed her to the airport to say goodbye. Mm. So how could he have not known? That's a lot of people. Well, he is doped up on Valium, so. <laughs> In September 1985, right after Sheila and her group left, Roshnish broke his silence. In his speech, he berated and belittled Sheila, calling her and her group a gang of fascists. He claimed that the attempt on his doctor's life, the bioterroristic attack, arson, wiretapping the commune, and the attempted assassination plot against U.S. Attorney Charles Turner were all Sheila. He was totally in the dark and had never, nor would he ever, give his consent for any of that. He went on to invite authorities to investigate the crimes, which they did, and they did find that Sheila and her group were guilty. Most of her loyal friends were still with her in Germany, so all were arrested and extradited back to the U.S. for trials and sentencing. Sheila pleaded guilty on 22 July 1986 to first-degree assault, the bioterrorism, to conspiring to commit assault against Judge Hulse and Commissioner Matthew. She attempted to setting fire to a county office and wiretapping. She was sentenced to three 20-year terms in federal prison, which was re reduced to four and a half years. Yeah. I don't know how that happened. Sheila was released from prison in December 1988 after having served 
29 months. Then she was deported back to Germany. Sheila later moved to Switzerland and now runs two care homes for older, handicapped, and mentally ill patients. That's terrifying. <clears throat> the 74-year-old still resides in Switzerland and, in fact, lives at one of those care homes. And yes, that is a bit terrifying. But, I mean, she she seems to be very real with them. She doesn't talk down to them. I watched another documentary on Netflix called Searching for Sheila. Mm -hmm. And she she never backs off. You know, she never. The only thing is when reporters ask her about the crimes. And that's when she goes, I've paid for those crimes. I'm done. It should never be brought up. I'm done with them. Yeah. That's the only thing that she does not talk about. Otherwise, she'll talk about almost anything. And she's real She's real real with the residents from what I saw. Mm -hmm. Talks to them about death. She talks to them about, you know, you need to talk to your mother and father. Just, I, I don't know, maybe she is the best person for a job like that. Well, and you have to think like, not this is not giving her an excuse by any means, but she was doing what she thought was right. She was working for Rashnish and she was trying to just provide for him and protect him, do whatever she could and protect him. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and the community. Yeah. Yeah. And so, no, she she didn't make the best choices, but she did pay for those, I guess, four years. And I don't know. I just find it so odd. Rajneesh was just like, no, I have no idea. I was just I was just taking my laughing gas and one of my cars and <laughs> driving around. Didn't know and, anything I mean, about anything. In September 1985, Rajneesh stated that he was not a religious teacher. Again, blaming Sheila for phrasing things as if he were. He changed his name to Osho and his disciples, who could now wear any color they wanted, burned 5,000 copies of his book entitled An Introduction to Bhagwan Shiri Rashnish and His Religion. So he titled his book and his religion, but it's Sheila. But he's not a religious teacher. But it's Sheila yeah. who promoted him as a religious teacher. And in the book, the Rashnishams or his teachings were described as a religious-less religion. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. The burning of his books, as well as Sheila's robes that were left behind, was his way of ridding the commune of the last traces of Sheila. Sheila was not the only one who attempted to sneak away. On October 28th, 19... 19- so, hold on. He led the book burning? Uh-huh. Did he write the book, or did she write that no, book No, he for him? wrote the book. And then he told everybody to burn yeah, it? Yeah, just burn that. But he wrote several books. He wrote several books. And the books... The books documented all of his discussions and all of his dissertations and his teachings. So they were taken straight from basically his script mm -hmm. that he would use in front of his crowd of adoring disciples. That's what the book contained. So was he trying to get rid of that? Mm, I see. And claiming that he was not a religious teacher? I don't know. This doesn't make sense to me because... He somehow found out that he was up for immigration fraud. So what does he do? He rents two Learjets, and then he and eight of his disciples secretly fly from Rashnishpuram. Final destination was supposed to be Bermuda. And I, I think it's because they don't have an extradition um, mm -hmm. rule. Yeah. But the planes had to land in Charlotte, North Carolina, to refuel. 
FBI agents arrested Osho for immigration fraud. Initially, he said he was entering the U.S. for medical treatment. He had like something wrong with his discs. Uh, they were deteriorating. Mm-hmm. He did actually go to a hospital, but only twice. Otherwise, he was treated on commune. Then he later applied for a visa as a what? Oh, religious teacher. Oh, my gosh. See, this doesn't make sense. Here's a little interesting tidbit. When authorities arrested Osho, they found on board many pieces of luggage, a large amount of cash, and an orthopedic throne-like chair. (laughs) Okay. Well, he had to have been in a lot of pain if his discs were deteriorating. That would be... Yeah, that'd be painful. That would be painful. Osho ended up spending 12 nights in a federal jail, then was released on a $500,000 bail, and the promise that Osho would drive directly to Rajneeshpuram and stay away from airplanes. (laughs) So Osho ended up pleading guilty to the immigration charges at his trial. At this point, he just wanted to return to India. And that was, in fact, the deal. He had to leave the country immediately. After Osho returned to India, he continued to teach, but it was pretty obvious that his health was declining. Sometimes the words he used during his teachings and preachings didn't make any sense. He would kind of ramble on. It just didn't make any sense. He did, however, come up with a new meditation, and he named it Mystic Rose. In this meditation therapy, one has to laugh for three hours every day for a week. What? Then the next week, you have to cry for three hours every day for a week. Then the last week, you have to be in complete silence for three hours every day for a week. Wow. There you go. That's uh... different. <laughs> I mean... I don't cry that often anyway, and to make myself cry for three hours every yeah, day. for three hours? I mean... For an entire week? I'd have to I, think of something... I mean, just laughing would be bizarre. <laughs> I'd have to call you. <laughs> I don't know. That's crazy. It is crazy. A 58-year-old Osho died from congestive heart failure on January 19th, 1990, at his commune in Prune, India. His ashes are kept at the ashram in Prune. After his death, the commune was renamed the Osho Institute, and today it is known as the Osho International Meditation Resort, which is said to attract around 200,000 visitors a year. So this is still attracting followers? There are now hundreds of Osho meditation centers around the globe. I will tell you that in order to enter one, you have to take an HIV test. If you fail, you cannot enter. Osho was terrified of AIDS. Now, granted, the whole AIDS scare came out in the early 80s, but he was terrified of it. In one report I read said that, yes, sex was a free thing and was promoted, but condoms had to be worn as well as gloves. You know, at first I thought work gloves, but I don't know. We don't, we don't, we don't need to get into this. <laughs> I wondered, I wonder what his reaction would have been concerning COVID if he was that afraid of AIDS. What yeah. would he have thought of COVID? He would have gone insane. 
I don't think he was very sane to begin with. Everybody would have uh, had to walk around with one of those suits on. So I'm just very curious about what his teachings were. And they're obviously something that people are still following and care for and believe in. Tremendously. Yeah. Okay. So question to you and our listeners. Whose side do you pick? The citizens of Rushpuram who only wanted to establish a community of peace and love? Or the citizens of Antelope, most of whom were hardworking retirees who saw the red-clad Rajneeshans as cult members? And who do you believe? Sheila, who in an interview stated that Osho was complacent and knew about all of the crimes. Or Osho, who returned Sheila's comment by, quote, She's on hard drugs. Maybe she's angry because I never made love to her. Unquote. To this day, Sheila professes her love for Osho, even though he treated her so badly there at the end, and adds that he was also in love with her, no matter what he says. Now, I know that this was a longer true crime, but I actually left some things out to keep it from being like two hours or, you know, three episodes. For more information, as we said, watch Wild Wild Country. It's done well. And Although it doesn't really go in depth about the person that is Rashnish or why people were so enamored with him, to find out a little more about Sheila now, Netflix is, has Searching for Sheila, which came out in 2021. And it's also very good. It's, it's Sheila in present day. That's what I got for you. That's what you got for us. Okay. Well, I I don't know the answers to your questions because... I honestly, I don't want to offend anybody that is still a believer or a follower, but I don't know, just th- that comment of, because sh- I never slept with her. It just sounds so immature to me. A lot, I'm sorry, but a lot of what he said seemed very immature. Just incredibly immature and just, I, I don't know, just, who do you think you are? Who are you? Like, what? I don't know. I don't know. Again, I don't want to became very step on anybody's toes He became here. very, very popular and still is. And whose side do I pick? I mean, again, I don't see anything wrong with building up this commune and building up this community and farmland and everything from this desert area. I don't disagree with with that. I do disagree with the differences that they were bringing to this small community. They should have respected their communities around them and not thrown their beliefs in other people's faces. I know they outnumbered this community, but that community, Antelope, was there first. And so it's like, just respect your neighbors. Now, after Sheila bought houses and stuff, they did come into town and live in those houses. I know. And they also took over the businesses um, Mm -hmm. and they all worked at the businesses and and everything. So, But but this was all done legally, though, too. They were in town. I mean, where I draw the line is the sexual things that were happening outside in front of everybody, you know? Do that on the commune where everybody understands, but not outside of it. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, well, we're going to just jump into paranormal because that was a long one, Uh, Mama. I know. I'm sorry. Well, don't be sorry. You're right. You really can't cut out a lot. (laughs) It took forever ever ever to research because i'd click on something and oh i didn't know that and i'd read that and then click on something else and read that it just went on and on (laughs) okay so paranormal in oregon i had a lot of fun researching this place 
I will be sharing with you all the history and legend of Jacinta Lighthouse, hence the lighthouse shot that mom took. <laughs> it looks like it should be pronounced Hecata. It's H-E-C-E-T-A. Uh, thank goodness for those videos on YouTube, or I'd probably be mispronouncing it this entire episode, but it's Hesita. Oh. We are going to rewind time and go back to 1775. Spanish explorer Bruno de Hasita was on a secret voyage for the Queen of Spain to go and explore the West Coast. He came across this rocky headland and the coast. He saw his dream of landing, parking his ship there. How do you say that? Uh, <laughs> Docking. Docking. Okay. Docking his ship there. I swear, I have an education. Um, I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> but he saw his future on these rocks and just all this land. He just, he saw a future there. But he actually wasn't able to park his ship. <laughs> he had to turn around and head back home because his crew had the scurvy. Ew, the scurvy. But the area was named after him, even though he never even put foot on the ground there he just <laughs> saw it and liked it they gave it his name so that was is nice that all you have to do is like something <laughs> wouldn't that be nice named after you <laughs> i just keep thinking about your dang story it's like it keeps i'm reading this and i'm like just keeps popping popping up all these people in red and <laughs> rolls royces and people lining streets and okay anyway all right, Hasita Head was a very ideal location along the cliffs and near the Columbia River. There was lots of potential. So the settlers started moving in. In 1889, funding was approved by the U.S. Congress for a lighthouse. I guess mariners and sailors. Mariners? Mariners. Why does that sound wrong? Mariners. Sailors <laughs> sailing along the coast between... Coos Bay and Newport, they've been asking for a lighthouse out there for a while. I guess it was really dark. So they approved the funds finally in 1889. But they didn't have the exact location for the lighthouse, which I find really odd because they're just like, here's your funding. But they're like, I still don't know where I'm going to put it. So like, how did they know how much money to be funded? Right. I, I think they did that backwards. <laughs> <laughs> and then... And then it took them three years to find the land to put the lighthouse. You could have built a, a whole city. Clearly. <laughs> from your story, they did. And it took these people three years to find the perfect spot for a lighthouse. And they haven't even built it yet. They just It took them that long to just find the location. <laughs> they bought a 19-acre plot of land. And in 1893, the lighthouse building was finally completed. So that took a year to build it. Okay. But it wasn't operational until 1894. So keep in mind now this is five years after funding was officially approved because they're held back because the lenses that they ordered for the lighthouse, like right. for the light, mm -hmm. uh, they're very powerful. They're called the first order Frenzel lenses. Uh, they were being sent from the Chance Brothers in England and they were having shipping delays. Oh, no. We all love those shipping delays. <laughs> it was far worth the wait. This lighthouse light, because of these lenses, was the brightest and the strongest on the Oregon coast. 
This wasn't some like little lighthouse. The lighthouse is 60 feet tall and it sat on cliffs that are like well over 200 feet high. So this is like a very large lighthouse. And then the the lights are the brightest. The light beamed out and could be seen at 21 nautical miles, which is equivalent to 24 miles. Wow. And I didn't know there was a difference in nautical and regular miles. And I did look into the difference and went down this whole nautical miles, whole mile wormhole. But I came out the other end not really being able to explain the difference. Uh, The best I gathered is that nautical miles is more latitude and longitude based. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. The lens came from England. The lights came from New York and the building materials came from San Francisco. Okay, so imagine these cliffs overlooking the ocean, and then there's like this flat area for the lighthouse, and then there's this curvy road through the cliffs to another, this maybe like a mile, maybe probably less than a mile, like half a mile maybe, to another little piece of flatland area for the lighthouse keeper's homes. Oh, so he doesn't live at the lighthouse. He has his own little pad. Yes, and... There was more than one. There's three. There's a main lighthouse keeper, and then there's two lighthouse keeper assistants. Okay. And they each had their own homes. But these building materials, they were put on rafts and then sent down the ocean. And because they're up on, these people are up on cliffs, right? So the people on the boats with all of the materials would push the materials overboard at Cape Cove, and then everybody would just have to wait for these materials to, to float ashore. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then they would transport these on a single lane wagon road through the cliffs. Holy smokes. Hasita Head was just a tiny little community, and these lighthouse keepers and their families, they were very isolated out there. There was a main lighthouse keeper and the two assistant lighthouse keepers, like I said, and then their wives and children that lived out there. Each family had their own house, but for the first like 10 years out there, establishing this lighthouse area with essentially just these families was very hard because they were so isolated. A lot of the light keepers just couldn't hack it. And I mean, I couldn't have, I mean, they have nothing out there. Mm -hmm. Getting supplies out to them was very difficult. And you just, you're very isolated with your families. So you can't just get in your car and drive 15 minutes to the nearest Dylan's. No. Well, first of all, there are no cars. Okay. (laughs) And second of all, they don't have a Dylan's. And yeah, you're just totally off there. <laughs> what if you don't like one of those families? <laughs> yeah, that would suck because you're like, you're stuck, yeah, we're stuck with there. Them. The first lighthouse keeper that was out there, his name was Olaf Hansen, and he was there for 15 years. And he and his family worked really hard sustaining the lighthouse, but they also built a vegetable garden, a post office, and a schoolhouse for their little community. Oh. In the 30s, it got a little easier with the Oregon-U.S. highway extending out that way, and the light station finally also received electricity. But until then, they didn't even have electricity. I'm sorry, this is probably a really dumb question. How they run a lighthouse without electricity? Oil. Oil. 
but with the electricity, they could get rid of the main light keeper, and they just had the two assistant light keepers out there. Uh. In 1943, the Coast Guard took over the lighthouse, and during World War II, they had like 75 Coast Guard living out there. They built a temporary barracks, and they set up camp. They had a 24-hour surveillance with the men and their dogs just watching the coast constantly during World War II. Mm -hmm. In 63, the whole lighthouse went automated. So they didn't need lighthouse keepers any longer. Oh. The living quarters and the buildings that remained went to the U.S. Forest Service. But all the buildings just kind of sat there. I mean, they had caretakers and they were maintaining them. But nobody was living there, really. In the 70s, they rented out the living quarters to Lane Community College as a satellite campus. So like the students would live up upstairs they knocked down a wall for a classroom downstairs and then upstairs they had like bunk beds for the students okay it was added to the registrar of historic places in 73 so the public are coming out to see the lighthouse still and the people are coming out to see the light keepers home but they wanted to do more with the area and then from there volunteers were chosen to transform the lighthouse keepers home that remained into a bed and breakfast Mike and Carol Corgan in 1995 restored it. The lighthouse has been restored as well, and it's all painted and everything to look as it originally did in 1894 when it was first all built. Their daughter, Michelle, now runs and keeps up the restorations of the bed and breakfast, and it's just darling. They did a very good job. The house is, I mean, just imagine the most picturesque they have weddings there now all the time but just the most picturesque white home with the shutters and the Mm. oversized front porch and the view is just stunning you have the cliffs and you have the ocean and just the crashing waves and then just up the little road Mm -hmm. still that's now a path uh, you can go to the lighthouse and it's it's just it's gorgeous And of course, I read reviews and they were all just glowing reviews, pun intended. (laughs) The view, like I said, is gorgeous. They have fireplaces in every room and then you have this gorgeous lighthouse. It just sounds so cozy. How many rooms does it have? Do you know? There are six rooms. They can house 15 people at a time. Wow. So they have wine and cheese and cozy blankets to sit out on the oversized front porch. You're greeted by a plate of cheese and crackers and chocolates and nuts. And you can choose between beer and wine. What? Just, Why are you laughing? Just picture this plate of cheese going, hello, welcome. <laughs> okay. That shot is finally hitting her. It's being- oh, my gosh. <laughs> The plate of cheese welcomes them. <laughs> Every room gets cozy blankets and a flashlight so that you can walk the grounds up to the lighthouse at any time of day that you want. And of course, they have a resident ghost. The ghost's name is Rue. Legend says that Rue was the wife of a lightkeeper, and that's R-U-E. And one day, one of her two daughters fell off the cliffs and drowned. Oh, no. Rue left Hasida Head with her remaining daughter, leaving her husband behind. But in her death, she comes to pay tribute and tries to find her daughter out at the lighthouse. Okay, that's one legend. Another says that the daughter drowned in a pond on the property. Another legend says that upon her daughter's death, Rue jumped from the cliffs, killing herself. Oh. So how do they know the ghost that's there at the bed and breakfast is Rue. And does this legend have any fact to it? Yes. 
Well, there is an unmarked grave up on a hillside by the lightkeeper's home. The plants around it are all overgrown and it is unknown who is buried there. Was there a lightkeeper's wife named Rue? We don't know. Wives and children of the lightkeepers were never recorded. Interesting. Just the lightkeepers, not lightkeeper plus four. Nothing. It was just lightkeeper's name. Well, darn it. So we have no idea. So where does the name Rue come from? Well, back when Lane Community College had the building, there was a lot of paranormal activity occurring in and around the home. Teachers, students, visitors, they all experienced something. So they, of course, used a Ouija board. Yeah. And upon asking the name of the spirit that was with them, the planchet spelt out R-U-E. So from there, that's the name that is used. Ah. Rue is not a malevolent spirit. She is not even really spooky, but so many have felt her presence. If you believe the legend that she was a lighthouse keeper's wife, then it seems that she is just there overlooking the home still to this day. I'm sure back in the day when she lived there, that was her job, the house, maintaining the kids and all of that. So I think she's just still there doing that. The housekeeper feels her presence every time a guest leaves and she goes to clean a room. Huh? Many times she will make a bed and turn to do something else. And then when she turns back around, there's a spot on the bed where someone had sat down there, like an imprint in the bed. Some report hearing a woman crying, which can be fitting to the legend. Mm -hmm. Yet others, and actually most accounts, recall a woman dressed in Victorian era clothing, not white dress, a Victorian era dress with gray hair. She's seen walking the halls, and some have even seen her on the grounds. A mist is also seen around the grounds of the house as well. Orbs are seen. Another common thing the resident ghost seems to do is move people's items around in their rooms. A lot of people will report missing items from their rooms. But they always turn up before the guests check out. (laughs) There's some forgetful guests there. Or else the wine's really good. (laughs) So my favorite story, and I heard it a little different each time I read it, but there was a former lighthouse keeper that had gone to the attic to fix a window that had broken. And as he was replacing the window, he he's holding up the window to set it in. And in the window, he sees the reflection of a woman in a Victorian dress with gray hair standing behind him. That would be so scary. Yeah, he got totally spooked and he dropped the glass and it shattered everywhere and he left the attic. Well, that night as the lightkeeper slept, he was awoken to the sounds of sweeping and broken glass above his head in the attic. The next day, sure enough, the broken glass was all pushed together in a tidy little pile on the floor. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. This place just seems really magical, cozy to me. Maybe because we're in that cozy season right now, the fireplace on, a nice blanket on my lap, the changing leaves, a good book. I can only imagine all of that with the view of the ocean and the lighthouse and the crashing waves. I I bet it's just gorgeous. Now, the B&B doesn't promote the ghost legend. They share it. And they do have a book there where guests write their ghost stories. Oh, that would be interesting to read. So they they don't shy away from it at all, but they aren't like, hey, come and stay at a haunted B&B. They don't advertise it. Yeah. Yeah. There's really no need. They do say that Victoria's room where the lightkeeper that used to be the lightkeeper's room is the most 
active. And others like to stay in the Cape Cove room because in the closet, there's a door that leads to a side, like a secret staircase that leads up to the attic. But the door to the attic is locked, so I don't really know if they just think getting up on the stairs is, is cool. Interesting. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I mean, secret door is pretty cool. So, like I said, I read reviews and I wanted to share a few. Thank you. I just have, I think I only have three. But the reviews are really fun to read. Again, everybody just has raving reviews. I guess there's like a seven-course breakfast oh, that you man. get in the morning. Why didn't we go there when we were in Oregon? It's probably nowhere near where we were. But it's like $600 a night. Oh, there you go. That's why we weren't there. <laughs> This is kind of a little special treat place, I think. Yeah. I'd like to go. But everybody had just raving reviews of the seven-course breakfast and just the atmosphere. And I don't know. It sounds just absolutely lovely. They do weddings there. And during October, they do do like ghost tours or history. They call them like ghost history tours of the lighthousekeeper's house and everything. Like I said, they're not shying away from it at all, but they don't use it as advertisement to come stay here. Okay, so I'm only going to read, I think, two of these because mom's story was so long. Jeez. Uh, I'll sum up this one, though. But like I said, they rave over this entire bed and breakfast. This person's husband, it says, my husband woke up in the wee hours of the morning and discovered an unexpected visitor. An elderly lady was seated in a chair that was not there and an aura around her. Ray is by no means a ghost hunter. In fact, he is highly pragmatic and scientifically minded. Yet, try as he might, he could not explain what he had seen in any logical terms. It was a ghost, period. Wow. And she ended her review with, P.S. The ghost awoke me during the third night with her heavy footsteps while moving furniture in the attic. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, I'm the skeptic. All right, here's one. We stayed just one night in the lightkeeper's room, which is a perfect view of the lighthouse. The rooms are small, but very comfortable. The home has a haunted history, and we did have an odd experience. Just after we arrived, we went to our room, and it looked like someone had been sitting on the bed. Mm -hmm. We went in, shut the door, and began unpacking. My wife said jokingly, this place isn't haunted. Just then, the door swung all the way open and bumped the wall. We looked at each other and laughed it off, thinking it was the wind. Only the window was closed. Next morning at breakfast, which was delicious, our host informed us one of the habits of the ghost was to move things or sit on the beds. Kind of creepy. Anyway, the lighthouse is beautiful, especially at night, and the beach just down the hill is fantastic. We definitely will be back and for several days next time. Uh, there was one where this couple was playing cards by the cozy fire and they were just having a really nice night drinking wine and they fell asleep and the ghost had turned the lights out for them. Oh. <laughs> and this is the last review I'll read. This was our absolute favorite place to stay during our two-week vacation. You are forced to relax and unplug. We stayed in, in Mariner one and i kept our window open the whole time so we could sleep to the sound of the ocean waves crashing on the cliffs sitting on the porch just watching and listening to the ocean was so relaxing we hiked up to the lighthouse at night and watched the beams being sent out to the ships on the water where else can you get an experience like that i truly felt privileged that we were staying there as we would hike down to the beach or up to the lighthouse the only other way to get up to the lighthouse is to park at the public beach across and hike all the way up. The bed and breakfast is in the middle. 
so we had private access to the grounds to sit on the porch. Also, the ghost stories were awesome. They have a whole folder of stories. When we ate in Yakutz, which is the town where the lighthouse is, our server told us that her friend was delivering supplies to the B&B. He knocked on the front door and the back door with no answer. So he tried again and a nice lady let him in. As he was leaving, after dropping off the supplies, the caretaker drove up and said he was glad to catch him. Her friend said, oh, no problem. The nice lady let me in. When the caretaker told him there was nobody else there, he got a little scared. (laughs) Well, she's a nice lady. So do the caretakers live at the house? I don't believe so. Okay. No, it's just for the B&B residents. I think they live nearby where they can come and care for the home. So you're just kind of there with whatever other couples or families are there. But it's gorgeous. And I watched a lot of YouTube videos and, you know, some of them really like to make this some really scary story. I don't think all ghosts necessarily need to be Scary. scary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Or demonized. (laughs) Yeah. There are several accounts of like the name Rue being written in like fogged over windows and stuff. Like the Ouija board. Yeah. It spelled out Rue. So now this poor spirit's name is now Rue. I hope they don't mind that. What if it was Ruth and the Ouija board just couldn't find the T? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But I thought that was a really sweet story and it was really, too sinister. It was really sweet. I don't think all hauntings need to be these spooky, demonic things. Plus, we're past Halloween now. Oh. <laughs> um, so have any, I mean, I don't want to say legit. That's not right. Have any um, ghost investigations been done there? No. Good. No, there's... I mean, yes, there's ghost investigations done there by several YouTube videos I watched. A lot of people do investigations there and they do capture a lot of intelligent responses. There's a lot of EVP things. There's a lot of the flashlight stuff. There's a lot of spikes and things. I mean, a lot does happen in the investigation. But it's people like you and me. Yes. Okay. Not like a big time show or anything. I don't. I didn't see anything like that that's been there. Good. Maybe that's keeping it wholesome. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's true. Well, thank you. Thank you for the story and this cocktail. Yeah. I'm happy you enjoyed it. I did. Well, guys, resources are going to be on our website. I got, a, Hangover Podcast. I got a lot of them. So <laughs> I'm sure she does. Uh, then we're going to post pictures on our website as well. Follow us on social media. And thank you so much for just sharing our podcast and leaving those reviews. We really appreciate it. It's so nice of you. And if you'd like to join our Patreon, we release an episode here every other week, but we release a Patreon episode to fill in those gaps. So if you want to catch us every single week, you can join us on Patreon. The link to that is in the description of this episode. You can also find a link to that on our website. But if you're having trouble, feel free to email us killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com and I can send you a personal link if you'd like. There you go. And just a little side note, Patreon is $5 for the whole month. It's $5 a month and you get all the backlog too. You're not just limited what comes out since you sign up. You get 
all the extra videos and episodes that we have and interviews and there's there's a lot there is a lot Mm -hmm. there is a lot so join us there we appreciate it remember to push the subscribe button on youtube and we're even considering starting to video ourselves and making this like a real thing i don't know i'm a little scared about doing that oh boy we gotta dress up and put makeup on what well no i'm not gonna do that but i'm more (laughs) concerned with me constantly scolding my dogs for noises or hold on I gotta go take a pee break because I'm pregnant or mom sputtering up sometimes over words oh trying to pronounce words it just we edit a lot of things we edit (laughs) we edit but we're still looking into it it may be an option so anyway follow us on that good old YouTube we appreciate that as well All right, we're going to let you guys go. This has been a long one. (laughs) We appreciate you. This was fun. Cheers, Mama. Cheers. Love you, kid.